This is God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We stop here in our reading from God's Word. Previously, in our previous study in chapter 8, Jesus had summoned the disciples to wholehearted discipleship and had emphasized the cost of following Jesus. The disciples must bear their crosses, remember. They must deny themselves and loyalty to Jesus, remember. An inescapable part of the Christian faith as we studied there. And yet Jesus also hinted previously about another side to discipleship. Along with loss was gain. Along with suffering was glory. For example, in chapter 8, verse 35, we saw a glimpse Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Chapter 8, verse 35. In other words, anyone who took up his cross and lost his own life for God would actually gain his own life. What does that mean? It means there's this other side to discipleship, not just suffering but glory. It means that the life of the disciple of Christ has two sides suffering and glory. Sharing in the suffering of Christ comes along with sharing in the glory of Christ. Denying yourself for Christ includes finding your all in Christ by faith. Taking up your cross for Christ also means being in a position to share his glory. So it brings us to our main point. Even though Jesus did suffer and was killed, his glory compels us to listen to him. First, we'll see the glory of Jesus, of which we will one day partake, verses 2 to 6. Then listening to the word of God explains everything, verses 7 and 8. And lastly, learning from the suffering of Jesus, by which we're restored in verses 9 through 13. So first point, seeing the glory of Jesus, of which we will one day partake. Consider the words of Jesus from our previous study, chapter 9 here, but back to verse 1 prior to our passage. I'll read it again. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What does this mean? Jesus had said that some of the people standing there would see the power of the kingdom of God and they would see that power during their lifetimes. Now as we turn to our study here in verse 2, we see some of that take place. 
We learn that six days later, six days after Jesus made that statement, he led three of his disciples up a high mountain. So our study of the events at the top of this mountain was only involving Jesus and these three disciples who are named here, Peter, James, and John. It makes a total of four people. You've got to keep track. What did Jesus bring those three men up the mountain in order to see or in order to learn? They were to see Jesus transfigured. This is classic. I'm sure you've heard it before that Jesus' body shone and his clothes, therefore, shone with great light. The word in the original Greek here is a word you might recognize in English because we borrowed it from Greek into English, metamorphosis. Yes, the same word we use in science class to describe a caterpillar turning into a butterfly to change the appearance. They were allowed, these disciples, a rare privilege, a rare experience to catch a brief glimpse of all that Jesus would be in the future when his kingdom finally came more fully. Jesus was changed before them in appearance. He was transfigured. His appearance was different. His glory was seen. His power was seen. So he fulfilled what he had said in verse 1, didn't he? That some who were standing there would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's yet to be fulfilled yet again and further, but already here we see Jesus fulfilling it. He gave these three disciples an early preview of the day when God's kingdom would come with power in the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So what did these three men on that day on that mountain see? It wasn't a vision. We read here in verses 2 and 3, they were seeing Jesus live, in person, in the flesh, the same one that they had followed up the mountain. He's right in front of them, radiating with glory, is what they saw. And while that happened, something else happened, and we discover that in verse 4, two previously deceased Old Testament people, they had long since died, arrived in order to talk with Jesus. These men were Elijah. Perhaps it's good for us to note here that Elijah also had an experience on a mountain with God in 1 Kings 19. And then Moses, who also had an experience with God on a mountain in Exodus 34. Moses, remember that occasion, came down the mountain with a glow of glory, but his glow was reflected and temporary. And here Jesus' glory is intrinsic to his very person. This transfiguration account is also told in the Gospel of Luke, and there we learn that Elijah and Moses talked with Jesus about his departure from Jerusalem. He used the word exodus. The death of Jesus would be a new Passover. The salvation of his people would be the new exodus. So we get to verse 5, and Peter kind of ruins the scene. <laughs> Peter speaks I think we would agree that we wish at this point that Peter had not spoken at all. Remember what happened last time Peter spoke? If you go back to chapter 8, verse 32, Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about being killed and rising again. And in chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus had to rebuke Peter and say the very strong statement that Peter was speaking like Satan and that Peter did not have in mind the things of God but the things of man. But... That being the case, Peter does speak. 
As we recall, the previous time that Peter spoke, he objected about Jesus' suffering. It gives us some understanding of the comments he makes here. Since Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer and to die, that's not the kind of Messiah he wanted, then the gathering of these people on the top of the mountain seems to Peter like a possible way out of suffering and dying for Christ. And Peter seemed to want to seize the opportunity, put up three tents, much like the ancient tents of meeting we read about in the Old Testament for worshiping God, and just call it done. We can just stay on top of the mountain Never go back down. There's a tent for each of you, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and we're worshiping God here. We all can stay on top of the mountain. No cross needed, no suffering needed. Verse 6 shows that Peter was terrified. So were James and John. It also admits, as Mark is reporting everything honestly, that Peter didn't know what to say any more than anyone else knew what to say. Was Peter onto something? Was it all over? Is this the end of the age? Has the kingdom of God come in a way that we weren't expecting? Ushering in the eternal future? Could Peter and James and John stay there on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and call it heaven? No cross needed? Is Peter on to something? No. God the Father needs to open up his voice from heaven to answer this. It's so important. Peter, James, and John were seeing the glory of Jesus, of which they would one day partake, but it was not yet time for glory. It's still the time for suffering. As Jesus had been saying, what they were seeing that day was only a glimpse of glory, a glimpse of future glory meant to encourage them. There was something significant, something foundationally important yet to be done prior to the full glorifying of Jesus and the ushering in of the eternal future. Jesus had to suffer, Peter. Jesus still had to be killed, Peter. When you look at the scene, it's no wonder that God the Father did something so rare and so definitive here as to speak audibly so that you can hear from heaven to earth. No wonder God the Father spoke so powerfully in both word and deed and having the glory cloud appear, that's the deed, and then the statement that we'll study in a moment. So that's our first point, seeing the glory of Jesus of which we will one day partake, but it's not a short circuit around the cross. Our second point, listening to the word of God, which explains everything. Verse 7, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Has there ever been a greater gathering? Call it a theological conference. Who do we have here? Well, we have none other than Moses, the Moses himself. We have Elijah, so two from the Old Covenant. We have Jesus himself prior to his crucifixion, live in person on the top of this mountain for the theological conference, if you will. We have God the Father, guest, surprise speaker, speaking from heaven. And we have three future New Testament apostles. A little work to be done on them yet, but we have Peter, James, and John. If you think about their contributions, you have First and Second Peter, First and Second, Third John, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, the book of James. That's eight New Testament books will be written by these gentlemen. 
eight books of the eternal word of God written by God and by these gentlemen. That's not enough. We also have, for the first time in 600 years, the reappearance of the glory cloud, the famous glory cloud from the Old Testament days. Many times in the Old Testament, God appeared to his people in that glory cloud. I'll give you a quick example. In Exodus 16, while the people were being led through the wilderness, the people were grumbling. We read this in Exodus 16, starting with verse 9. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 10, Exodus 16:10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I won't take time now, but the rest of how that story goes in Exodus 16 is that God then spoke from the cloud. And all this is being brought to their memories as the event is happening on the top of this mountain in our passage here in Mark. Mark chapter 9, we have God the Father causing a cloud to appear. As we read in verse 7, the cloud overshadowed them. And then following that, the voice comes out of the cloud. It's the voice of God the Father. Speaking from heaven, it was in this context that the voice from heaven spoke. The only other time that the voice from heaven spoke is in Mark 1, verse 11, the instance where Jesus was baptized. And God the Father is speaking to God the Son, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. This time he's speaking to the disciples. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. We know that it was the voice of God the Father because of even studying the language of it. My son. Who else would that be but God the Father saying, Jesus is his son. What was it that God the Father spoke? He's pointing the disciples to Jesus. Listen to him. Stop this nonsense about tents. Stop this nonsense about rebuking Jesus and asking him not to suffer and not to be killed when he's telling you he has to suffer and he has to be killed. Listen to him. God the Father is educating Peter. If you will, God the Father is rebuking Peter from heaven, much as Jesus had recently in chapter 8 rebuked Peter from earth and all the others along with him about who Jesus is and what Jesus must do. He's the Savior, and he must suffer and die. God the Father is explaining the significance of Moses' appearance there, the significance of Elijah appearing with Jesus on that mountain. He's explaining that this is a glorious moment and the consultation of all the premium figures from both Old Covenant and New New Covenant are gathered together and the focus of all of them should be Jesus. That's what God the Father is saying. This, not all of you or some of you or several of you or a couple of you, this one person is my son. This is my beloved son. All focus here, all eyes here, all ears here. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's a glorious moment. Peter understood it all wrong again. Just as Jesus had rebuked Peter in chapter 8, 33, now God the Father rebukes Peter in chapter 9, verse 7, that God the Father is telling Peter to listen to God the Son. This gathering on the top of the mountain was not a way for Jesus to escape from suffering in the cross. This gathering 
On top of the mountain was preparation for his suffering and going straight to the cross, unhindered, undistracted. If he needs to rebuke his top disciple, he'll do it. He's heading to the cross. Because suffering is inescapable. Read it in verse 31. Go back to chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them, to teach the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and so on, must be killed and must, after three days, rise again. This is what must happen. It's inescapable. Moses and Elijah have been called in to confirm the need for the true sacrifice, the true lamb of God to replace all the previous sacrificial lambs and goats that pointed beyond themselves. It has not yet been fulfilled. What the wrath of God requires for the sin of people has been illustrated, it's been symbolized, but it has not been fulfilled. That's what the meeting is all about. That Jesus' exodus is his exodus from the realm of the living to the realm of the dead. No one be, can be saved by the wrath, from the wrath of God by the blood of animals. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer. Jesus must suffer. He'd already said it. Had Peter listened? Had the other disciples listened? Perhaps they had listened some. Perhaps they were gaining some knowledge, gaining some understanding, but they had not absorbed it as Jesus had taught it. And we were told in chapter 8, verse 32, that Jesus had spoken plainly. It's as if God the Father is saying to Peter, focus your attention on Jesus and stay there. Focus on the fact that Jesus must suffer and die for the sins of God's people. That's what this meeting is all about. That's the best theological conference ever is about Jesus needing to go to the cross. All that happened with Moses and all the Old Testament sacrifices and messages will not save God's people without Jesus coming, without Jesus becoming that sacrifice. And as if to underline what we've already seen God the Father say verbally, and we now turn to verse 8, and the focus on Jesus is underlined with choreography, if you will. We find that Moses and Elijah have left, and this happened right after the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven. We read in verse 8, listen to when it happened, listen carefully, verse 8, and suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That means that as soon as the voice came from heaven, Moses and Elijah were out of the picture. They were looking at Jesus. So they're supposed to look at Jesus, supposed to look at only Jesus. Don't be distracted, Peter or James or John, by Moses. Don't be distracted by Elijah. You no longer see Elijah, do you? You no longer see Moses, do you? It's one of the most sacred moments in all the history of the world. And Peter and James and John were there to see it. It was just as Jesus said in verse 1 would happen. They will see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If only they would listen to Jesus. For Jesus had been trying to tell them the truth. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must rise again. It brings us to our third point, verses 9 through 13. Learning from the suffering of Jesus by which we are restored. Verse 9, they're coming down the mountain. The whole event is over. Theological conference is finished. 
Jesus is descending the mountain with the three, Peter, James, and John. Moses has returned. Elijah has returned. Uh, Father has not any other things to say from heaven. They're coming down the mountain. Fresh in their minds is what God the Father has said out loud to them. Listen to Jesus. And Jesus begins to speak. Isn't this a fresh opportunity for the disciples to actually listen to Jesus? Okay, here's a fresh opportunity. What would Jesus say and would they listen? Jesus commanded them, as we read in verse 9, to tell no one what they had seen on the mountain until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They listened. They did what they were told anyway, but they still struggled to learn, struggled to fully understand. So verse 10, we get this. They kept the matter to themselves. That means they didn't share with others. They were not planning to share what had happened on the mountain. They were listening. They were obeying. But verse 10 continues, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They were obeying better. They were listening better in that sense of heeding, but they did not seem to be understanding much better. Only after the resurrection of Jesus would their eyes be fully opened. Only after Jesus would appear to them as the risen Lord and speak to them would they understand that the power of God must be made known through the weakness of the cross. Verse 11, they turned to Jesus, the great teacher, and asked him a question for their own understanding. This question we read from Scripture in verse 11. Why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? There's this one thing, you see, that still puzzled the disciples. They had ascended the mountain with Jesus. They had seen a glimpse of his glory. They had seen the kingdom of God with power. They had heard the voice of God the Father. They had been taught and corrected, but they were still puzzled by this one thing. Uh, the resurrection would be the sign of the end of the world. When the resurrection happened, they would know other things have been set into motion, such as the final judgment, ushering in the new age. If the resurrection is so near, then the disciples are still puzzled about why Elijah must come first. They're thinking here of the prophecy in Malachi. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 reads this way, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So it's very clear God said he would send Elijah before the day of the Lord. So in the minds of the people for a few hundred years... Since Malachi had been written in the silence in between the intertestamental period, between the finishing of the Old Testament, starting of the New Testament age, for a few hundred years, people were thinking, Elijah the prophet comes first, and then the Messiah, and then the end. So if you remember, chapter 8, verse 28, Mark 8, 28, some people thought Jesus was Elijah. Remember that? They were thinking that something big is going on, Maybe this is Elijah who will start the process toward the end. We'll get Elijah first and then the Messiah and then the end. But they didn't realize that Jesus is the Messiah. So here the disciples were asking the one salient question, the one thing that still puzzled them. 
How do you line up this passage, Mark 4, verse 5, with what we just saw on the mountain? And Jesus answered brilliantly, of course, in verse 12. Elijah does come first. Elijah's work is restoring. But that passage cannot be read in isolation from other passages in God's word. So here in verse 12, Jesus reminded them of other passages, such as, How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see, Jesus is harmonizing for them all the passages. Elijah did come first, and that's all done already. The Christ has come next, and that would be Jesus. He must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. How does all this work? Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus is showing them that the promised forerunner of Jesus has already come. Now, who would that be? Mark started his book with it. Chapter 1, the ministry of John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness. That's the Elijah. That's the one like Elijah. And then in chapter 6, Mark has explained to us the death of John the Baptist by the cruel Herod, because John was preaching truth, that John the Baptist was the one prophesied to come who would be like Elijah. The restoring work that Jesus is talking about here is that John the Baptist was involved in not the restoring work of government and politics and human kingdoms. Rather, it's the restoring of a spiritual kingdom of repentance, the restoring of hearts turned toward God, the putting of people's minds back onto things of God instead of the things of man. It's preaching truth, which is what John the Baptist was doing. He's saying, you got it all wrong. Repent and turn from your sin. It's what John the Baptist did. It's what John the Baptist symbolized by his baptism of repentance. We covered all this in chapter 1 and chapter 6. John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah. John even introduced the Messiah when John famously said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, John the Baptist also said about Jesus, I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. John 1.34 So, The world's response to the Elijah-like figure, the world's response to John the Baptist foreshadows the world's response to Christ. John the Baptist was rejected. John the Baptist foreshadowed that the Christ would be rejected. John the Baptist suffered, foreshadowing that Christ must suffer, which has been his whole lesson in this um, transfiguration occurrence, and that John the Baptist was killed, foreshadowing that the Son of Man must be killed, as Jesus has been saying. The explanation that Jesus made answered all of their questions. It must have made a lasting impression on Peter and James and John, because who's our author here? Not Peter, not James, not John. It's Mark. How did Mark find out? Because Peter and James and John understood what Jesus taught them and they shared it with the other disciples 
and we carry this forward as part of the essential teachings for Christians to know. By the testimony of these three disciples who were on the Mount of Transfiguration, being given to Mark and being given to all the disciples, everybody has the ability to make sense of all the scriptures thanks to Christ. The one like Elijah is not to be some government leader and neither was Christ. The one like Elijah had already come and so has Christ. Here he is right in front of them and even a glimpse of his glory right in front of them. They had been blind to Christ. As the uh, prior miracle from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, the only miracle who, where there's a partial healing and then a fuller healing later. It's illustrating how the disciples, especially Peter, had a partial sight and only later had the rest of their sight. Peter was able to say, Thou art the Christ. But only later could he understand what all that meant. Peter's only seeing partially. Like being able to see trees walking around. He could see Christ. Jesus is the Christ, but only partially. He didn't quite understand it all. Only after the Son of Man had risen from the dead would it be appropriate for them then to share with others what had taken place on that mountaintop. Only then would it be completed that the Son of Man had gained victory over darkness and death. So as we wrap up our study tonight, we notice one theme of Mark's gospel coming out again in our passage. The disciples loved Jesus. They trusted Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the Christ, but yet struggled to understand everything that that meant. Again and again, Jesus is opening their eyes to more and more truth. It's one of the themes that we've seen. So, our concluding application tonight, I have two. Number one, get a glimpse of glory in your Bible. It's natural for us, when we study the account of the transfiguration, to feel like we got ripped off, to feel like we lost out, to feel like, whoa, if only we could have on the mountain with Peter and James and John and me and to see the glory of Jesus. What a privilege that would have been to hear the voice of God the Father audibly from heaven pointing us to Jesus. We would surely never forget that. But that's not how Peter would coach us. That's not how the fully understanding Peter later would have us look at it. In Peter's second letter to the church, and therefore to us, Peter wrote that the Bible is as clear and as powerful as any word that we might be able to hear spoken out loud from God in the sky. That's Peter's view of the transfiguration. That's Peter's view of Scripture. Peter, as an old man, now well endowed with the Holy Spirit. Peter, now more mature. Peter, having had time to reflect and to discuss with the other disciples. Peter, very close to his own death when he writes the book of Second Peter, knew he had received the privilege, for sure. He understood the privilege of being there on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And yet Peter knew it was his special assignment to make sure that the rest of us down to today didn't misunderstand the Mount of Transfiguration. That he received a glimpse of glory and yet he wanted us to understand how we are to view that. Listen carefully to Peter writing in 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 13. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. End quote. That's 2 Peter 1, 13 to 21. What did Peter mean by these sentences? If we're still desiring the privilege of being on the Mount of Transfiguration and catching a glimpse of the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ now and hearing the voice of God the Father speak out loud from heaven, we then would apply that desire to reading the Bible as eagerly as Peter would have loved to build tents of meeting on top of the mountain. Peter is reminding us that the same voice speaks in both places. The same voice that Peter heard out loud is the voice that speaks to us in the written words of the Bible. The same God the Father says the same message to us. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If we're not reading the Bible, we're not listening to him. And what is it that the Son of God says to us? The same message God the Son, Jesus Christ, says to us in the Bible He said to Peter, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus for what to believe. Listen to Jesus for what to do. So the first application point is pretty simple. Get a glimpse of glory in your Bible. Second and last application, be willing to suffer while serving Christ. Be willing to suffer while serving Christ. Christ still calls us to self-denial. None of that was retracted from what we learned and studied earlier in chapter 8. He still promises to repay us for all of our suffering. Christ calls us to take up our cross. It's still there. That's not retracted, that command. He still assures us that we'll not lose our souls. He asks us to follow him. That's still the command, follow me. And reminds us that the Son of Man is coming one day soon in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. We read that in chapter 8. And so we are to be willing to suffer while serving Christ, a chaplain, speaking to a soldier on a cot in an army hospital, said to the soldier, you've lost an arm in the great war. No, said the soldier. I didn't lose my arm, I gave it. You see the attitude difference? 
The difference is what Jesus calls us to. The difference is willingness. The benefit of the glimpse of glory that we've studied tonight is that we have assurance that everything we suffer has a matching glory. Everything that we do for Christ will turn out to our benefit. It is worth it. Those who suffer with Christ also share with Christ in his glory. To consider the suffering of following Christ can be depressing when you're in the middle of it, if you're honest with yourself. The transfiguration is a gift that gives us a blast of encouragement to be willing to continue to suffer. It will all be worth it. We're told in the Bible the disciples stood on top of the world. And they saw the king of kings with a brief look at his majesty. And we know that by faith, by reading this story, we can stand on top of the world with Christ, by faith, the King of Kings. And it really helps us to go through the valleys with Christ, to stand on the mountaintop with Christ. And we read about John the Baptist being beheaded by King Herod. Do yourself a favor, go back and start with chapter 1 and read Mark up until our chapter 9 here. You read about John the Baptist, ministry in chapter 1, his being beheaded in chapter 6 by King Herod. It's downright depressing. What a wonderful and faithful servant of God John the Baptist was, and yet this suffering is the way that his life ended. We lost an incredible preacher in that moment. Martyrdom, wickedness, so sad. Keeps on happening from that day to this. And at those moments when we grow discouraged and feel the weight and price of it, we keep in mind the package deal that the death of John the Baptist is connected to the resurrection of John the Baptist and none of his work is in vain. When the glory of the mountaintop experience is gone and the visiting Moses has left and the visiting Elijah has left and the voice of God the Father Nothing else to say from heaven on top of the mountain. And the skin of Jesus and the clothing, therefore, are no longer shining with supernatural brightness. And when it's just a regular Wednesday, and you have to get up and go to work and face a coworker who gives you reproach just because you love Jesus and they know it. It's on that day, it's in those moments, we need to stay willing to suffer for Jesus. How do you do that? You remember the glimpse of glory. We were all given the glimpse of glory to take it with us. It's in your Bible, it's in your mind and heart. Paul seeks to explore this for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Being willing to suffer for serving Christ, for his glory compels us to listen to him, to deny ourselves, to follow him, we are serving a majestic Christ who at a moment's notice in the sound of a trumpet will come with all of his glory and you will wish you had done more. 
You're serving a majestic Christ whose majesty is muted and quiet for now. We have been given a glimpse of glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us the right attitude.